whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Sure. I'm Rachel Barney, and I teach philosophy and classics at the University of Toronto. I'm, I'm officially three quarters a philosopher and one quarter a classicist. And my title there is Canada Research Chair in Ancient Philosophy, so funded by the, the people of Canada. I work on Greek philosophy, really any ancient philosophy, but with a pretty strong tilt towards Plato, I've done a bit of work on Hellenistic philosophy and some other areas as well, and uh, also the ancient sophists I'm very excited about right now, Protagoras in particular. I guess my main interests are in ethics and epistemology and questions about philosophical method. What is it to do philosophy? What's the best way of writing philosophy? And of course, Plato is still one of the most interesting people you can look at for those questions. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask an unofficial follow-up question, which is a, a wild okay. card, which is this. So I, I, this is connected with Iris Murdoch, who is my inspiration and whose writings I generally love. The one book of hers I was never able to get through was The Fire and the Sun, her book about Plato and art. Have you ever read it? Does that, is that, has that had an impact in ancient philosophy? You've, you've stumbled across my secret shame here. I love Murdoch as a novelist. And I love Plato very deeply, and I cannot read Murdoch on Plato. I don't know exactly what it is, but no, I find her, I find her ancient philosophy stuff unreadable, and I'm I'm not entirely sure why, and I'm I'm sure the fault is mine. I, I'm not sure the fault is yours, in that I I do like Murdoch's writing about most things, and even some of her platonically inspired philosophical writing in The Sovereignty of Good. But the stuff where she's explicitly writing about Plato, I, for some reason, find very hard. Some of it is that the paragraphs are endless and the writing seems distinctively worse. But well, it's good to know that, that I'm not alone anyway. You're not, in, you're not in, alone. You're not alone at all. No, I think there's, she's, I mean, she's doing something very philosophically ambitious and there's elements in there of Wittgenstein, I guess, and existentialism and certain mystical influences that, to me, just make the whole thing completely undigestible. So having opened by dissing Murdoch, I can now ask you my first <laughs> Murdoch-inspired question. So she begins the, the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yes, and I, I should say that I, I am a huge Iris Murdoch fan, and uh, I think that's a wonderful quotation. In my case, the most obvious way in which what I do expresses my temperament is that I've always been fascinated by the past. So I was one of those kids who was determined to be an archaeologist, and I carried it a lot further than most. I actually hung around Toronto after I graduated from high school for a year basically annoying people at the museum until they took me on 
as a kind of intern. And so I spent a year cataloging archaeological slides and realized that I did not want to be an archaeologist after all. But uh, working on ancient philosophy uh, has some of that magic for me of uh, recovering the lost, recovering the past. It's also very uh, text-oriented and I was also the kid who always loved reading, and uh, it's wonderful to have a, a job that involves such you know, deep engagement with uh, so many wonderful pieces of writing. Well, I have various follow-ups I want to ask. I'm going to start with the quirkiest, which is your interest in the past. Is that something that shows up in your personal life? Like, are you interested in your own ancestry or sort of nos especially nostalgic? Um, not in my own ancestry, no. I do seem to have a uh, taste for the vintage in home decor, and uh -huh. I realize that's kind of a ridiculous point to switch to, but I am fascinated by, I guess, the simultaneous nearness and remoteness of the past. So even, yes, handling objects from 100 years ago gives me a kind of thrill of vertigo of, of holding two, two times in my mind at once. So yeah, I do have that kind of general preoccupation. I, and I guess I, I've always loved that line of William Faulkner's about the past, not really, not really being past at all. Was it through archaeology and the people you met with your interest in archaeology that you got into ancient philosophy and, and maybe read Plato? Or how did that happen? That happened by a different and strange route, which is that I went to a high school that actually taught philosophy. And in grade 12, we read quite a lot of Bertrand Russell's History of Philosophy and all wrote little essays on various pre-Socratics and Leibniz and people like that. And in the last year, grade 13 as it then was, we were all forced to read Book 5 of the Republic and uh, comment philosophically on it, as well as writing uh, long papers on our own personal favorite philosophers, which we all had by then. And I detested the Republic. And it, uh, it sort of, if, if I'm remembering correctly, it sort of made me angry. And that was my stimulus, my initial stimulus for taking more ancient philosophy at university was to figure out how anyone could take this guy seriously. My favorite philosopher, just to spare you the obvious follow-up, uh, at that point was Nietzsche. So I was, a, I was a teenage Nietzschean. But it's hard to think for long about Nietzsche with also, without also becoming very interested in Greek philosophy and, uh, again, being led back to Plato. Do you still find Nietzsche interesting, and are you still a Nietzschean, or was that a teen phase? I still have Nietzschean leanings, I guess. I don't, I've never written a Nietzsche paper as a grown-up. I don't think about him at, at the office, so to speak, for the sort of sad reason that I, um, I have some kind of difficulty with the, the idea of Nietzsche scholarship. I know there, there has to be such a thing, and that some of it is, is excellent, and I could learn a lot from it, but the sort of liberation uh, that you get from actually reading Nietzsche. There's something at war between that and the idea of you know, professional Nietzsche studien. So I've kind of avoided him in a professional capacity, but I'm, I'm sure he still influences the way I look at the world, yes. I have one last follow-up about temperament. This is the other thing that you said that really intrigued me was the idea that you were made angry by reading Book 5 of the Republic, and that's what led you towards it. That's what sort of pushed you towards more study of ancient philosophy. Is that a temperamental inclination, a kind of attraction to, <laughs> I don't know, conflict or things that irritate you at the same time somehow pull you in? Well, I do. I do think that I, uh, I'm pretty good at anger, and it's always good to be able to use your talents. So there, there may be something to that. And in fact, one 
thing that I think I've learned from Plato that's that's very important is how to think about anger, his uh, theory of the tripartite soul in the Republic, in particular, this idea of the, the thumos, the spirited part of soul, and how it needs to be educated and trained and harnessed to the purposes of reason. I think that's a wonderfully important concept, which I, I sometimes think I should try to write a, something sort of popular about. And certainly during the Trump administration, I felt that a lot of people could have understood better what was going on if they'd read The Republic and Book 4 and Book 9 with some care. So I'm going to ask you a second question about philosophy in your life. What, if anything, have you learned from failure as a philosopher? Well, I'm going to put a somewhat optimistic spin on that concept, I think, because even though I live with a continual sense of failure, it's the feeling that I experience most often in relation to my own work, it's never decisive in philosophy. At least it doesn't feel that way to me, because philosophy is a, a problem-solving exercise, and the problem that you didn't solve today, well, you might solve it tomorrow. Uh, so there's always hope. There's no there's no finality to any failure. There's only temporary setbacks. And in philosophy especially, the problems are not going to go anywhere. The odds are that that problem isn't going to be solved by anyone else either. And maybe someday you'll be able to go back to it and do better. So I'm currently working on a paper which I delivered at a conference 10 years ago. There was some delay getting the volume for the publication going. And I realized to my horror that not only do I not remember everyone who's helped me with the paper over the past over 10 years, uh, but really this paper dates back to a actually not very successful paper I wrote in grad school. So that would be 91 or 92. And, you know, the prob <laughs> problem's still there waiting for me to solve it. And I think I'm doing much better at it now. That way of putting things suggests that failure in philosophy is in many ways gentler than the kinds of failures that we have in the rest of our lives. Because I, I think failure in other cases often doesn't feel like it's revocable in the same way. It feels like there's no coming back from it. And philosophy is, despite being so difficult and full of failure, you're right, doesn't, doesn't sort of punish you in that way. You can always take another stab at it. So does failure in philosophy feel to you very different from failure in real life? Oh, yes. And especially failure in teaching, unfortunately, can be irrevocable in that way, right? I mean, if I if I give a just not very good lecture on Plato's Euthydemus, as I did last week, that's, that's it. Uh, I can I can say, well, let's go back to this next week and try to, you know, <laughs> recap and be a bit clearer and get them a bit more excited. But basically, I've, I've blown it for this year on the Euthydemus. And there's a there's a group of students who aren't going to get what they what they should out of it. I mean, even there, we're very lucky because um, there's always next year's class and I can I can try to do better. So I think, you know, in many ways, our, our profession is structured in ways that we can we can be thankful for. But I do often feel that way with teaching because teaching is, it's temporarily indexed. It's very much a form of performance. And so it's like the difference between being a, maybe being a composer who can always struggle to achieve something better next time and being a performer and knowing that you got that note wrong. That's, that's irrevocable. Well, on the theme of failure, I think I'm going to turn us to the third question, which might be about failure on a much larger scale. So Here's the question. Do you think there's progress in philosophy 
And if so, what form does it take? Well, that is a question that I have wrestled with and actually tried to write a paper about. The paper doesn't make much progress. Ha ha ha. It's a bit of a failure. <laughs> um, so I have not published it, but I, I believe it's, in fact, I know it's up on my website because I get random emails from students saying, thank you for writing this paper. Students are really interested in this question. And by that, I mean, undergraduate students, uh-huh. um, as well as graduates. So they, they would like us to do much more discussion of how does how does philosophy work anyway why you know why is it that we read these ancient people and that we think they might still be right or why do we read these people if we're sure they're not right it's, it is quite mysterious to them and, and rightly so that the field is structured the way it is so i'll tell you what i explore in that paper and i'd, I'd be fascinated to hear any thoughts you have about it yourself Clearly, philosophy is different from the sciences, and uh, it's not an accident that as something becomes a functioning, progress-making science, it tends to be hived off from philosophy so that the the terrain of what philosophers do has, in some ways, shrunk in, in every century. What exactly the nature of the difference is, what causes it, that's where things get tricky. And what makes it especially tricky is that it seems clear if you look at the micro level that progress is being made all the time. I mean, especially in analytic philosophy, philosophers argue with each other. And, you know, after five years, the theoretical options on the table are much better than they were on any given topic. And you can see that in the history of philosophy as well. I I love going over the the early history of the pre-Socratics as we did in my my high school class and seeing you know how Anaximander corrects Thales and Anaximenes corrects Anaximander and after a century the theories on the table are much improved so it seems absurd to say that there's no progress in philosophy and yet when you step back and look at the fact that you know we're still reading Aristotle in introduction to ethics courses it looks as if there isn't and i don't really solve that puzzle i take uh, i take refuge in an analogy which is uh, to the history of art, because it seems to me, and specifically visual art, painting, it seems to me that that is what exhibits the same pattern. There's a sense in which uh, you can see progress all over the place if you look at Renaissance artists trying to figure out how three-point perspective works, say. But, you know, some of the most ancient cave paintings are great art by any standard uh, and have that kind of classic status that Aristotle has, there's, in a sense, no way to improve on them, even though there are all these technical respects in which you could say improvements have been made. So whatever the paradox is, it's a paradox that applies to art as well as philosophy. And I think your opening citation from Murdoch is very interesting that way, because presumably it's going to have, the the common feature is going to have something to do with the way it relates to the individual perspective, individual temperament, the way it's somehow a more individual pursuit than science is. I mean, part of what's provocative about the Murdoch quote is the idea that to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. And we're supposed to feel, I suppose, a tension between those two elements. And in the case of visual art, you might think, well, the fact that it doesn't make progress, or that there's technical progress with respect to, say, perspective or certain kinds of color or or construction in sculpture or whatever, that that doesn't constitute a kind of longer term progress. 
is easy to live with, maybe, because it's not a truth-seeking activity or it's not a kind of, well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you contest that if you think that's not right. But one thought would be visual art isn't a truth-seeking activity in the way philosophy aspires to be. So there's a way in which it's we can live with it there, but it's more troubling in philosophy. So the analogy potentially makes more salient that anxiety about whether we are really in the truth business. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do end up speculating in this paper that really the right way to think of philosophy is as the art form which aims at truth, uh-huh. where where truth, I suppose, is to be understood in, in, in some kind of hard-nosed sense that excludes, you know, the truth in you know, Botticelli or whatever. It's the same kind of truth as is aimed at in the sciences, let's say. But the means and the structure of the medium are more like that of an art. So it is this kind of paradoxical hybrid, and it is quite disturbing if one thinks that philosophy doesn't make any progress towards the truth in a way in which, you're right, the history of art does not disturb and worry people in the same way. And my my speculation on that is that it's perhaps not as bad as it looks because these truths that we're seeking to discover, I mean, I don't want to say they're, they're socially constructed exactly, but the their answers to questions, and the questions are questions that arise in a particular society that makes particular assumptions, and for a particular kind of person, the philosopher in question, and in the context of a particular scientific background. So if you if you view if you view philosophical theories as answers to questions which are themselves always changing for perfectly good reasons, then I think the history becomes less disturbing because we can say, well, actually, you know, the, the progress in philosophy is not just technical progress, it's local progress. It's never more than local, but that's because our locality keeps changing. I mean, I like that formulation that philosophy is the art form that aims at truth. And you've been addressing worries about one side of it, namely the truth side that I pressed you on. Actually, I'm struck now that looking at the state of contemporary philosophy, we might be equally worried about the art form part. I mean, Plato, you work on, Nietzsche, you mentioned, those are philosophers whose writing looks like it would be reasonable to think of it in terms of art, as works of art. But most contemporary philosophy maybe doesn't quite feel that way. Some of it very much not so. So do you worry about the way in which contemporary philosophy isn't living up to the idea of being an art form? Or is it when we think about the kind of art form it is, is there a way to think about the kind of art form it is that makes the the state of contemporary philosophical writing less dispiriting? Well, I do think I do think there's something to be worried about. I think that I do worry about the state of analytic philosophy in particular and the degree of technicality uh, in the field and the degree of specialization. If I if I look at a contemporary journal and I realize that I'm going to have great difficulty understanding any of these papers and that the number of people who can understand them is very limited. I find that worrying and the upshot that uh, these conversations are happening between you know within very small groups of people I find disturbing. I would like to see a philosophy that was much more as they say public facing, but there has been a move towards that, right? I mean you're you're a part of that yourself. A lot of people whose training was in this very kind of technical and inward-looking analytic philosophy are now 
I mean, Antony Appiah, right, has gone from doing very techy uh, philosophy of language uh, to doing these wonderful books that uh, really anyone can read and appreciate and learn from. And I, I hope that's the new model, because yes, the other thing does worry me. Well, I'm going to turn the question forward to art in its own right and ask, is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Yes, many of them. And I should, since we dissed Murdoch, I'll start by saying I think The Black Prince is a wonderful work of philosophy, really, as, as well as art. I can read that uh, any number of times. And some of her other books as well, The Book and the Brotherhood. And I'm very lucky because of the nature of my teaching assignments. Uh, I get to teach in the classics department and I do freshman seminars where we pick a theme like death or immortality and read lots of Homer and Greek tragedy. And I also designed a course on dystopia mm -hmm. uh, a while ago. And I'm, I'm very much uh, someone who believes you should be yeah, reading, reading poems and plays and movies to, to think about ethical topics in particular. But with all that said, when I thought this over, the example that actually I realized was the outstanding one for me is uh, Monty Python. Mm -hmm. I grew up hugely influenced by the Python shows. I was a bit young for them the first time around, but maybe caught immediate reruns and, of course, saw the movies. And there is something very philosophically interesting going on, many philosophically interesting things going on in Monty Python, not just the question which all their skits raise really, which is, you know, why is this funny exactly, which is which is itself a philosophical question, which I don't think we're very good at answering. Why what is humor? What makes something funny? But the kinds of humor they use are almost always pointing to something latent in ordinary society, which is absurd, and they're just extracting that absurdity. So there's a there's a sort of element of ethical critique there and a, a questioning of assumptions and questioning of authority and a, a demand that you sort of confront the absurdity that's latent in your own existence, which I think is really philosophically rich. That's great. No, I love that example. I use a couple of Monty Python sketches in teaching intro ethics. There's the meaning of life sketch a little bit about in, in a boardroom where they're talking about the meaning of life right. is great. And there's also, I think this was just from the TV show, there's the argument sketch, the argument clinic. Yes. Where Michael Palin, I think it is, goes in to be to have an argument with John Cleese. And they, in fact, in the course of three minutes of joking, explain what an argument is, what a premise is, what validity is, and the difference between constructing an argument in the way philosophers do and having an argument in the more the sort of colloquial sense. Yeah. I mean, are, are there bits of Monty Python you've used in in teaching philosophy? Well, yes, I've, I've often referred to the argument sketch. And the other one that's great for making a point quickly, although it's rather a complicated point when you start to spell it out, is the wonderful scene in Life of Brian, where Brian is making a speech to his followers and they're just mindlessly repeating everything that he says. And he gets very frustrated because what he wants is to encourage them to think for themselves. And so he starts saying that and saying, you know, you all have your own minds. You should think as individuals. You're all different. You're all individual. And this one voice at the back pipes up, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what to figure out exactly what's going on there. I mean, really any... Python sketch, I think, could be a philosophy paper if you actually unpacked what was going on. Well, great. That's a, a thousand dissertation projects have been born in this in this very exactly. podcast. 
I'm going to move to our final question. It's another Iris Murdoch-inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? That seems to me a very tricky question because it seems as though there's two different questions there. So I'm finally doing that philosopher thing of saying, well, what do you mean by that good, question? Good. Are we talking about the kinds of fears that I know I have and therefore try to avoid? So it's really a question about, you know, what, what do I try to avoid most? Or is it a question about, you know, things that I'm worried about, worried that I might not be worried enough about, if you know what I mean? So that am I being challenged to increase my self-knowledge by this question or... It's interesting. It, it does feel like one of those questions that it, it's like a Rorschach test. The question is just, you ask it and then see how someone responds and that that's supposed <laughs> to tell us something. I mean, that's a very interesting distinction because it's different from the kind of distinctions that other guests have made. It's, it's a, a new way huh. of, of worrying about this question. Is, well, I guess whichever of those you think you have, you have something <laughs> to say about. Yeah, okay. But, it, but you can see what, I, what I'm getting at is yeah. that when you, when you read a philosopher, you might say, here's, here's a person whose work is sort of vitiated by this flaw, and this flaw is that they're terrified to think about subject X. Right. But of course, it could be, that's probably something that that philosopher didn't know about themselves, that they're terrified of subject X. So I can tell you what I know I'm afraid of, and it's a kind of funny example and brings us back to the question of failure and, and progress, I guess. Uh, I'm still terrified of death after having read Plato's Phaedo, I don't know how often, and taught Epicurus, I don't know how often, and evaluated all these different arguments and taught undergraduate seminars year after year. And I seem to be quite capable of convincing freshmen that really death is nothing to be feared, but I've, I've never made the slightest progress in convincing myself. I find it really bizarre that anyone is convinced by any of the classic philosophical arguments that death isn't bad for you. <laughs> I wonder if, you know, it's easy as a freshman to think, yeah, good, I, I won't worry about that. But yeah, once you reach midlife, it's harder to be, uh, harder <laughs> to be dismissive. Well, maybe, maybe we'll leave everyone puzzling over fear of death. And I'll say thank you, Rachel, for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Rachel Barney is Professor of Classics and Philosophy at the University of Toronto. She's the author of Names and Nature in Plato's Cratylus, a wonderful essay on trolling, and many other essays on ancient philosophy. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Mm-hmm.